welcome to I Can Make That, Conversations with Creatives. I am Katie McKinley, and I'm a self-proclaimed maker of things. My family and I live and die by the code of DIY, and naturally, we found ourselves surrounded by people who lead some pretty creative lives themselves. I've decided to stop selfishly hogging all of my brilliant and wacky friends and to start sharing them with you. Behind every finished project is a human being who went through a range of successes and failures in making and in life, and it's about time that we get to know just who those talented individuals are. Welcome to episode number six, everyone. I'm looking forward to not only introducing you to today's guests, but also being able to get to know them myself. I came across an Instagram page that they created and act as an admin for, and then curiosity got the better of me, and I began looking into who she was as well. Deep stalking on the internet isn't always encouraged, but sometimes it gets the best of you, am I right? My person of the hour is Andy Wells. She is the voice behind the So Pretty in Pink blog. Andy is a pretty rockin' plus-size blogger and sewist who also is very open about living with Allardanos syndrome and often speaks about sewing for accessible garments. After sharing their own experience with a chronic illness as it relates to sewing, Andy created an inclusive space within Instagram for others in the sewing world with chronic illnesses, either mental or physical. Chronically Sewn features sewists, bloggers, and makers that find this space one of support and celebration. Along with sewing, Andy is part of an improv group and is a self-proclaimed member of the geek culture where they cosplay and live life to the fullest. Welcome to I Can Make That, Andy. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. I'm very excited to talk to you. And I think it's fun to point out that you're from Canada, which makes you my first international guest. So, woohoo! I can make that as international now. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I'm so glad to be your first international guest. And you're from Toronto, is that correct? Um, well, I'm not from Toronto, but I've lived here for the past 10 years. Um, lots of people aren't from Toronto, but they live in Toronto. Um, I would say that uh, I, I'm a, a resident of Canada because I've lived in so many places in Canada. I actually grew up in Michigan, uh, so I took a fair amount of trips to Toronto for school events and family vacations, and I love Canada, so... I, I'm vaguely familiar of where you're where you live right now. And there are so many things I want to cover with you, so I'm not really sure where to start, but let's just begin with sewing and making and blogging. Where when did you first get behind a sewing machine? Um, well, when I was growing up, my mom sewed and she had a avocado green Husqvarna machine, um, uh, which was from like the nineteen fifties or nineteen sixties. Um, but I never learned because my mom sewed through her finger (laughs) and I became absolutely terrified of the sewing machine. I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to go near it. I was pretty sure that it was just going to sew through all of my body parts. (laughs) And so I never did it. Um, but I did, I did sew a little bit in high school home economics back when we actually had home home economics class. Um, so I sewed like a drawstring bag and a pillow. Um, but I had no interest at the time to continue that. Um, I did all sorts of other crafts, like needle crafts, like sewing little Barbie outfits and little pillows and stuff for my dollhouse that I made. Um, and other fiber arts, like cross stitch, um, knitting, all sorts of things. Um, but I didn't start sewing until 2008. And this story kind of coincides with how I met my husband. 
Um, and I was living in St. John's, Newfoundland at the time, and he lived in Toronto, which is the whole reason why I'm in Toronto now. Um, and he added me on Facebook because he was running a charity group at the time that was all about taking pictures of yourself or others doing snow angels. And then he would donate to a Toronto food bank called the Daily Bread Food Bank. Um, and I added him back because he was cute. <laughs> um, and I still think he's like the cutest guy. <laughs> I posted a status at the time about not really knowing what I would be for Halloween. And somehow through all of our conversations, I got the idea to just get a cheap pink sewing machine. It was a terrible clunky Kenmore with a plastic frame. And it actually like jumped around my table like crazy. Um, and it didn't even have a zipper foot. <laughs> um, so my first mashup, uh, my first project was actually a mashup of Little Red Riding Hood and the Big Bad Wolf. And it was for a burlesque group performance that I did in St. John. Um, so I made the outfit to sort of, uh, like reveal that I was really the Big Bad Wolf all, all along and totally made it without a cow, without a pattern. Um, and I cowgirded the whole thing, like, cutting pieces, putting them on my body, and then adjusting here and there. Um, it wasn't a terrible disaster, <laughs> uh, given all of that and not really knowing how to do any of that. Um, but I actually like really liked it and got a lot of great feedback on it. So after that, I found patterns. And so my mom taught me the basics of using patterns over Christmas vacation. And I learned mainly from online tutorials after that. And then eventually with the Kirby Sewing Collective, um, I learned how to fit garments to my body. Lots and lots of uh, false starts with that because patterns are not made for plus size bodies, or at least they weren't at the time. <laughs> There's a lot more choices now. Um, and then in terms of like formal training, I only really took one in-person class with uh, Beverly Johnson, the fairy bra mother herself. Um, but my dream is probably to take the tour sewing with Brooke Ann Camper. But other than that, I'm self-taught. That's really amazing that you got to meet Betsy Johnson. Hello. I would be jealous or I would just be reveling in that like experience for years to come. I think she's so like, she's so everything that everyone wants to be, I think. Yeah. And I also met um, Emerald Aaron. Uh, at the time, too, because she was uh, learning how to um, draft patterns and how to fit people um, from Beverly at the time. And Erin's uh, really, really nice as well. A fellow Canadian. It seems like more and more of the indie PDF designers specifically are starting to create patterns that now include plus sizes and true plus sizes. Uh, it's refreshing to even see that in sewing. Clothing is becoming more accessible for all people, really. And just looking at your blog, it's easy to see that you sew a lot of cashmere at patterns. Um, but and I know she's pretty popular in the plus size sewing community. Do you have any other fa favorite plus size pattern designers that you'd recommend we check out? Um, I I really, really love Helen's Closet, Friday Pattern Company, and um, Seamwork, especially with the recent Seamwork patterns. They've been really well drafted. Um, 
And then uh, Rad Patterns, um, who also do adaptive patterns, which is amazing. And they are also a sponsor for the Flow Project uh, uh, Challenge on Chronically Stone, which is great. And so is Helen's Closet and Cadbury's as well. Um, but really, I just recommend that people um, just find companies that fit their, their own style and, and actually sew for them. <laughs> like so for their specific measurements <laughs> yeah it seems like uh more and more companies are starting to expand um into outside of the norm of what used to be especially with the big four pattern companies they tend to their sizes are crazy to me so it's nice that um the pdf the indie world at least is recognizing the differences and and opening themselves to more people that way it's so true and it's actually um i mean Patterns are a lot more inaccessible here in Canada. Like they're more expensive than most places in the United States. And so PDF patterns are kind of our go-to up here unless you want to like pay bunches of money <laughs> or travel like long, long amounts of time because I mean, there aren't as many places here to buy stuff. Um, so I mean, indie pattern companies are where I thrive. I love PDFs and I really oddly love putting them together. <laughs> I think the bonus too is that there are communities based around these designers now too. So you get to not only sew the pattern, but you get a direct, um, I guess, a direct link to either the de designer or other people who sew their patterns also. So you have like constant amounts of support and um inspiration and just lots of things that come with it yeah it's really it's really excellent that um so many indie pattern designers do that i don't know how they do it though because i mean it's almost like they're on 24 7 and, and i'm just like wow how do you do that plus have a family plus you know like have maybe some of them work as well it sounds like a lot <laughs> they're superhuman i think is what happens. I think so too. <laughs> and I know blogging can sometimes feel like a pretty demanding creative outlet also. Uh, some people use it like a well-oiled machine for business opportunities and are just constantly pumping out content and others use it more like a public journal where they share more of like a journey that they're on. How long has So Pretty and Pink been an online space of yours? Um, I I created it back in 2013, um, and I kind of have used it as my own journaling system, <laughs> um, not just to uh, to talk about the garments that I make, but also to talk about issues like um, not having enough choice in plus size patterns or um, the whole history of, of the plus size industry um, or fat issues um, like fat activism or disability activism. Yeah, it's from what I've read. I mean, I, I've only known about you for a little while, but I've definitely gone through a lot of your blog and I really appreciate being able to just, um, I guess, have my eyes open to things that I don't really think about in my everyday life because they don't necessarily affect me as much. But it's really, I don't want to say refreshing, but it's nice to know that there are other people out there and I can be a little more sensitive or a little more supportive of, you know, disabilities or, um, you know, the plus size community where I don't realize that I'm not before. 
that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So my family is huge into nerd culture. Generally speaking, we we lean a lot more towards like Marvel comics and Star Wars and political debates related to both of those things. And I know I love people who nerd out to certain stories or universes or interests. Some people love sports team and we love people with genetic mutations that give them superhuman powers. In my mind, there's really no difference. (laughs) Um, And I know that you lean towards the geek culture a little bit. What's the biggest one that you flock toward? Um, Speaking of genetic mutations, (laughs) I love X-Men. X-Men is probably my favorite. Um, I've always been a big, huge fan of it since I was young. I loved reading the comics. Um, I loved the female characters mainly. Um, So like Jubilee, Phoenix, Kitty Pride, Mystique, and Rogue, just to name a few. But it's it's probably the one cosplay that I haven't really gotten around to creating, (laughs) which is mostly just because I can't choose a character. But you have done some cosplay before then? Yeah, yeah. Um, I create all of the costumes for my improv troupe, The Dandies. Uh, So I've created a bunch of Star Trek costumes, Harry Potter costumes, and then, um, you know, put together uh, Star Wars costumes, all sorts of stuff. So they have like an on-site seamstress with you, huh? Yeah, yeah. I don't get paid too much, but (laughs) (laughs) but uh, yeah, it's um, it's definitely a uh, a great thing, and it definitely um, it upped our game as an improv troupe. um, Just having things that match the the genre that we're we're basically improvising. Well, I'd love to know more about your experience with improv comedy, too. I love improv, but I would be, like, the worst at it possible. I don't consider myself to be intentionally funny. Um, But anyone who's able to get on stage and perform and entertain is, like, it's just mesmerizing to me. How did you come to join the Dandies, and how long have you been performing with them or improv in general? Um, this is another in conjunction with my husband. <laughs> um, he, he got back into improv probably in 2009. Um, years ago, he had been part of the Toronto improv scene and, um, and, uh, he decided to start taking classes again. And, and then we started doing some jams together. And a jam is basically where you can sign up to perform or just jump on stage to perform with a bunch of other um, improvisers. Um, so I did that. I took some workshops here and there. And then in, I think it was 2010, we just sort of looked at each other and we're like, do you want to just, you know, create a duo? Um, so we created the troupe, the Dandies. And it's actually my husband's name, Dale, and my name, Andy. Um, together, but also a nod to the dandy of the Victorian era. Um, so we did duo sets on stage for a bit um, and started running some infrequent jams as well. And then in 2011, uh, during Christmas, we had some time off work and binged the entirety of Star Trek The Next Generation, <laughs> which was a marathon. <laughs> and then we got sad about it being done. <laughs> And decided to create an improvised Star Trek show. Uh, and we called it Holodeck Follies because the holodeck in Star Trek is a virtual reality simulator. So it was the perfect name for an improvised show. Um, and we've been doing it ever since. So it's been about seven years because um, we started in early in 2012. And we've been doing it 
since then and performing at several fan cons, um, including opening for William Shatner in Winnipeg, Manitoba. That's really cool. How did you know that you'd even be good at improv? Are you just naturally, are you, do you have theater in your background or are you just kind of, you're just kind of witty like that? I, uh, I did some improv back in high school, um, with drama classes. Um, and then I joined in here and there in university. Um, so I knew that I liked performing and I also, I did performance with, with the burlesque group in St. John's and just knew that, you know, I'd caught the performing bug. Um, but I knew that I couldn't dance anymore because of, um, my knee, um, would collapse on stage. Although I didn't know it at the time, that was one of the signs of uh, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Um, but uh, I really wanted to perform. And when he started doing improv, I was just like, yes, I want to do this too. <laughs> I know that you are very open about things in your life, and you've, you've mentioned it a couple of times. Would you, uh, would you be willing to explain Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome a little bit to us? Absolutely. Um, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is a rare genetic disease. Uh, so we're born with defective collagen. And uh, I'll explain that in a bit, but um, there are several different types of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Um, from now on, I'll just call it EDS because <laughs> it's a long name. <laughs> with my type, it's type 3 or hypermobility type. Um, there's no known genetic markers to detect the disease. And we're diagnosed through family history or a look at it, as well as a look at our medical history. And then we're tested for flexibility on something called the Baton scale. Um, the other types of the disease are diagnosed through genetic testing. Um, so back to collagen. Collagen is literally in every part of our body. Um, it's even a little bit in our bones, but less so. Um, and it makes us stretchy, but more fragile. <laughs> so... Most types are hypermobile. So that means that we bend beyond the normal range of motion, causing things like joint dislocations, tendon and ligament issues, and then leading to arthritis later in life because of the damage that we do to our bones. Um, there's also more serious issues such as migraines, gastric motility, which can lead to your stomach not being able to digest food, prolapses, hernias, ruptured veins, and spinal collapse and a whole bunch of comorbidities, which are is a medical term for multiple chronic illnesses. So it's a really complex <laughs> disease, and it's not well known at all by doctors. Um, and, you know, it can affect every organ in your body. It can affect every joint in your body, um, including your skin. Your skin is a huge organ, and people with uh, EDS, basically have really fragile skin. It can sometimes be super stretchy or it can be prone to bruises and tears really easily. Um, I only got my diagnosis at 35 because a lot of doctors don't know about it. Um, so that was in 2016, giving away my age there. <laughs> um, and that was years of being told that I was just fat and needed to lose weight um, or before that, when I was younger, I was just dealing with growing pains. Um, but, you know, most people don't cry uh, for hours on end from growing pains. Um, but I was originally diagnosed with fibromyalgia, um, which is pretty common with people with EDS. 
but it just didn't fit with what I was experiencing. Um, and when I told the rheumatologist at the time that my dislocates in my sleep, he told me, and I quote, that is not a thing. So I definitely <laughs> sought another opinion. <laughs> and I saw something that like, uh, I think when I was looking it up, there is a, a zebra that um, is used to represent the, the illness. There's like a symbolic meaning behind a zebra. Yeah, the symbolic meaning is that most doctors, when they hear hoofbeat, think of horses. But with people with a rare genetic disease, it's, it's usually a zebra. Um, so that became our emblem. And a lot of people with EDS talk about being a zebra warrior or, um, although I'm not so sure about the warrior mentality, but uh, because this is just a thing that I have, I'm not like, I'm not able to fight it. <laughs> um, I'm just able to manage it. Um, but I love the zebra. It's like, it's such a great uh, way of looking at rare disease because it, it um, encapsulates the whole idea that, that doctors are taught one single thing and they're not really taught to look outside of that unless like that's how they are. You know, like if that's their personality type to think outside the box, then they will always think outside the box. So I've been lucky enough to have some doctors like that but lots of doctors think immediately of horses. And I'm like, I'm not a horse. <laughs> That's interesting. And plus zebras, don't all of them have, aren't their stripes a lot like our fingerprints are? So every single person, every single case would be different with this and, you know, with EDS. Absolutely. And, and it does, it's exactly like that. You know, some people, um, they present with the disease so that they immediately, when they're born, they are born with dislocation. Um, I wasn't uh, born that way. I was born perfectly fine. Um, and for years, I seemed perfectly fine until the injuries started um, accumulating and then my body started breaking down. Um, and, and there are other people who live well into their 60s before they're diagnosed. Well, I find the Instagram group that you've created to be just so incredible. Chronically Sewn represents an important and overlooked group within the sewing community. And I'm really happy that it's there for other sewists. What brought you to establishing Chronically Sewn on Instagram? I think it was about a year ago, a little over a year ago, that the Socialist relaunched. Um, and with that, a few of us started establishing little niche groups. Um, so Shannon from Rare Device on Instagram launched So Queer, um, which I'm a part of as a bisexual and genderqueer woman um, or person. <laughs> um, and then there was also uh, So Over 50, which was created by three different people, I think. Um, although it's escaping me what their names are. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and I thought um, one aspect that wasn't addressed was people with chronic illnesses and disability because it really, really changes how you sew, what you sew, what you sew with, um, how often you sew, um, if you can sew at all, like, uh, but you still want to be creative and you still want to be part of the community. Um, and, and I really wanted to, to find people who were like man, like-minded so that I could do research, resource sharing, um, where basically we could share, say, what's the best 
sewing machine for someone who is a wheelchair user or um, what's the best way of cutting out things when you have wrist issues or um, where are the good adaptive patterns out there. So I thought that this was a, a great community that, that we didn't have and lots of questions that we didn't have answers to. And I know you mentioned a little bit ago about the slow project challenge. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, the slow project challenge is a two month long challenge where the expectation is that you don't have to create anything, um, which is very, very different from most of the challenges out there because most challenges require you to produce something within a short amount of time. And a lot of people with chronic illnesses and disability don't have um, as much energy or as much, uh, they may also not be financially able to create as much as they want to. Um, and there's, you know, like there's countless other variables that, that cause them to not join into challenges. So this challenge was just about use the hashtag and uh, and then, of course, because I'm always very mindful of the fact that financially it is tough when you have a chronic illness and a disability, um, that I'd find sponsors for it so that people could get free stuff. That's really neat. Um, and it's a new take on a sewing challenge for sure. There are some groups out there that have, they do have challenges. I mean, I've run... I've run contests myself where we we push people to start and create something within days or a week. And I can't imagine how left out they would feel if um, they're just physically or mentally incapable of, you know, competing like or participating. And I really think that this uh, slow project challenge is a really it's a neat way to make sure that you're inclusive of other sewists in the, in the community. So it's really mm -hmm. pretty cool. And the, and I mean, the, like, the other purpose of the challenge is to, to just encourage rest amongst us sewists, you know, um, and, and just resist that like culture of consumption that we have, um, where it's like produce, produce, produce. Um, this one just says you don't have to produce anything. If you're just, you know, sharing that hashtag and, and that's your participation and you can get something done, that's great if, if you get something done. Otherwise, just, you know, um, focus on yourself and focus on what you can do. Um, and, you know, one of the one of the things that that is so tough about disabilities is that you feel really excluded from a lot of stuff. Um you know, you feel excluded from, from normal life, from friendships, from, um, and there's a lot of exclusion on Instagram too. Uh, the whole, the whole idea of constantly posting picture after picture, um, constantly engaging, it can be exhausting. And, and for some people with a disability, that is their only access to the outside world as well. Um, and that's tough. You know, so I wanted to make sure that this this challenge was just like if you participate once, that's great. If you participate several times, that's even more entries. Or if they just follow the hashtag and watch other people's progress, that is excellent too. Absolutely. 
And I know with groups like Chronically Sewn, and you mentioned So Queer, and Meat Makers of Color is another uh, sewing group that I like to follow. Um, the community members are willing to share experiences and talk about things that might not get enough light shed on them. And I follow those groups specifically to learn, but I get the bonus of seeing beautiful people and beautiful creations in my feed, which is really all that I'm on Instagram for, right? Just to to learn, experience, absorb, and just, you know, witness other people's lives. And do you have a hope for Chronically Sewn's future? Do you plan on expanding it beyond Instagram? Do you kind of, or are you going to kind of keep it into this like smaller community that you've built so far? Um, for now, I'm focused on building the community and doing inclusive challenges. Um, but in the future, I'd, I'd absolutely love for it to turn into a collaborative blog or something similar where people can share accessible resources, um, such as sewing machine recommendations or adaptive patterns or even just how they manage their time and energy. Um, because I think that that would be great, especially for people that don't use Instagram. I do a lot of work for Patterns for Pirates, and I've seen a lot of crossover between our community members whom, you know, I would have had no idea that they had some sort of chronic illness and they're showing up in, in your feed also. So it's, um, it's just beneficial to, to witness and see and understand what's happening within the communities that we're within. And I think representation matters too. It's unbelievable to me that there's still a need to explain to people why representation matters. But I think a majority of people just don't think about it. You know, everyone's kind of stuck in their own little bubble, especially with mental and physical um, illnesses. And has there ever been any moment of realization that your decision to create Chronically Sewn was worth all the extra stuff that comes with social media and sometimes less than kind people that go along with social media? Um, with the with the chronically sewn community, I haven't encountered any unkind, unkind people yet. Um, there just seems to be um, just an overall sense of thankfulness that it, it exists. Uh, so, you know, when I share pictures of what other people have created or, um, you know, my own uh, struggles, that people are mostly just like, yeah, like, I, I, I get that too. Or, um, you know, I, I had no idea that, that someone else was going through this. Um, and I think that it's just a, it's a sense of community that we have there. Um, I've definitely experienced it on my own individual Instagram. <laughs> um, some, some nasty comments there. Uh, but, uh, but for the most part, the chronically stone community has always been worth it. Um, and, and I just love, uh, seeing what people create with the hashtag, like it's, it's so inspiring. Um, but also just, uh, like they're also talking about, um, you know, their sort of their struggles and, and their, how they're interacting with the world. And I just think that that sort of stuff is, like you said, I mean, representation matters if, if you don't see it, most people outside of the world don't talk about it. And most disabilities are pretty invisible because it's an accessible, like it's an able world out there. So we don't really get to participate in it as much. So using this hashtag has made such a difference to me not feeling alone. 
I'm going to have to remember to add that hashtag to my follows on Instagram now too, so I can get more in my feed because I do really think that your community that you have created is a very, I just, I feel inspired and just, I, I love I love witnessing it. So this is my final question. And it's what I like to ask all of my guests. What is something that people would find surprising about you? You know, this is actually really surprising to a lot of people, but I get super nervous before going on stage. Um, I, as much as I have, like, I get on stage and, and I'm fine. Before I can't have full conversations, I have like one word answers and my stomach is like in terrible knots and I can't eat, you know, and, and I also find singing on stage because we do that pretty often, absolutely terrifying. Um, even though I sing all the time at home and improvise songs constantly at home, but when I get on stage, it's like singing is my... Um, Achilles heel, basically. Uh, but, you know, once I get past the nervousness, then I'm just on stage, then it's, it's a lot easier to actually do it. <laughs> but yeah, I have pretty like terrifying uh, stage anxiety. <laughs> and you even said you were nervous before you started on this podcast episode too, which blew me away because you're a performer. So <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> And it's funny because a lot of people um, turn to improv to help them with anxiety as well, um, because it's a way to get past that fear and just to say, okay, the fear is not going to hold me. I'm just going to do this. And then when you're doing it, you're not thinking. You're just, you know, you're improvising and you're doing what's in the moment. So you're responding to um, what people are saying in the moment rather than being in your head. Um, So it's great for anxiety. Like, there are so many people that I know that are like, yeah, I got into this for anxiety and now I'm doing it every two seconds. <laughs> like, I, they catch the performer bug, basically. Um, but for most of us, that um, pre-stage anxiety doesn't really go away. Um, but it helps once you're on stage. <laughs> For everyone listening, thank you so much for joining us for the sixth episode of I Can Make That, Conversations with Creatives. I will leave links in my blog post as well, but you can find Andy at soprettyandpink.com and on Instagram at soprettyandpink, as well as the Chronically Sewn Instagram at Chronically Sewn. See you next time, everyone. to I Can Make That, Conversations with Creatives. Transcripts from this episode, along with links and more information about today's guests can be found at www.wildandwonderful.com. See you next time, creatives.